This is day 224 of our daily Bible reading. We will be reading all of 1 Thessalonians today, chapters 1 through 5. Lord God, have mercy on us, sinners. We are your servants. We are so inferior to you, Lord. We are so stubborn and so foolish in our own flesh. And yet, Lord, you've given us compassion and mercy and joy, things that we don't deserve. It's so hard to understand that sometimes, why you did that, but the least that we can do is be grateful. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us enough to show your grace in our lives. Thank you for the breath that we draw every day. Help us to see that more clearly. Help us to see you more clearly and to hear your voice. Please bless the reading of this word today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy To the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, as apostles of Christ, we may have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. 
having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, or joy, or crown of exultation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus, at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God 
for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well 
that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we were awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, congratulations on finishing another book of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians. Today was the first day that felt like the end of the book is coming quickly. I know we still have a couple of long ones, like Hebrews, that's going to take us at least three days to go through, and the book of Revelation is very long as well, but all the other ones in between are very short, some of them only one chapter. So it feels like we are at the sprint to the finish line at this point. Well, let's go through what we learned today in 1 Thessalonians. So this was a letter that was written by Paul 
and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is another name for Silas. So we saw him in the book of Acts, and this is who Silvanus is. This is Silas. Why he's called that, I assume maybe there's a Greek name and maybe a Hebrew name, I'm not sure. But that is who is being referenced here. Now, very much like some of the other ones that we read, like Ephesians and Philippians, so on and so forth, this was likely a circular letter, meaning that this letter was being passed around and copied from different churches. And so it would start at the church it was addressed to, for example, the book of Ephesians. It would start in Ephesus. They would read it. They would likely transcribe it. And then they would send it along to the other churches for instruction, exhortation, as well as encouragement. Because they all were attached to Paul in some way. He was either the missionary that started their church, or he was someone who heavily supported it. And he was very well known by these people. So I'm sure that when the Thessalonians got this letter, they were thrilled to hear from him. And really, if we paid attention to what Paul was saying here today, he had nothing but good things to say about the Thessalonians. Not every letter he's written so far was as nice as this one, because they were not really doing anything wrong, and that's good. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to do, and Paul is encouraging them to excel still more. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and that's fantastic. But why stop there? Why not go above and beyond and just let your faith and your love explode and be infectious? And that's what he was trying to get at with them, is you guys are doing extremely well, but let's take it up a couple more notches. Imagine what you can do with that. So we today, as a church, are challenged to be like the Thessalonians holding fast to the gospel of Christ, and also not compromising with anything else that the world is trying to distract us with, but staying the course, and then after that, excelling still more. But first, got to get to step one. got to make sure that the church is firm in its foundation in the scripture, and that it is a Christ-centric church. That is absolutely essential. Without that, you will fail as a church. One of the overarching things that we see Paul do often throughout this letter is like we see in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You're going to see this a lot throughout 1 Thessalonians, if you didn't see it before. There is a lot of prayer talked about here, and he closes with that as well where he talks about pray without ceasing. And this is what we would call intercessory prayer. So Paul is modeling an intercessory prayer life to where we are constantly praying. And basically what that means to be intercessory praying is to keep the line of communication open with God constantly. This doesn't mean that you're spending half of your day on your knees. Should we spend time on our knees and in a posture of submission? Yes. But what it's talking about is you take God everywhere with you. You let Christ 
be a part of everything that you do. Let him be the flavoring of everything that you put your hands to do. Let the Holy Spirit anoint every word that comes out of your mouth. And enjoy the things of this world and praise God for them. Thank God for the meal that you're eating. Look at the sky and see the sunrise or the sunset and thank God for it. You have a difficult situation at work? Whisper a prayer of help and petition. Are you at work thinking about somebody's salvation that's around you and you pray to God that you would be able to share the gospel with them? You're carrying God everywhere and have him be a part of you. Imagine that you were on a phone call with somebody via Bluetooth or you were at the grocery store with a family member or a girlfriend or a wife and you had them active on FaceTime the entire time that you were at the store with them. Just constantly talking to them, having them be involved in whether, whatever activity you're doing. That's what we're talking about here. Talking about bringing God along for every little thing you're doing. He loves that because that's what he seeks from you. He seeks not only your obedience in his commands, but he also wants that relational aspect with you. Because if you haven't figured God out by now, he's a very relational being. He desires communion with you. And so we want to make sure that we are being obedient to that, but also we should desire to hang out with God. You know what I mean? If he is indeed our Lord and Master, we would want to be in his presence as much as possible. So why not invite him into your activity? So try doing that today. Whenever you are at your job, or whenever you're at home, or whenever you're at school, or wherever you are, invite God into it. And just whisper things in your mind to him throughout the day, and just to involve him. And you would be amazed at how your day goes. You may see things differently. You may be more sensitive to his will. It may cause sanctification. And that is another overarching theme of Paul's letter today. Sanctification. What does that mean, to be sanctified? Sanctification, to put simply, is the process of being made holy. So when God saves you from your sins through regeneration by the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus Christ, we are completely forgiven and we are justified before the Father. Meaning that the price is paid, we are no longer under judgment, and we are clean in his sight. But we are not perfect, right? We haven't achieved perfection in our flesh, and we never will. But the whole intention of God's working in you is that as the days go on, you will become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That is the act of sanctification. So what I'm getting at is it is an act of maturity. The trials that we go through, the lessons that we learn, the study and increase of knowledge in the scripture, our interactions with God in our prayer life, all of these things are meant to conform to the image of Christ and to grow you as a Christian. That is sanctification. 
Every day, you should be getting better than you were yesterday. Will you have hiccups? Yes. But overall, we should be better and better every day, every week, every month, every year than we were prior. And that is how we mature as Christians. You will never get fully sanctified until you die. But we want to get as close as possible to where in our elder years, we have that strength and that wisdom and that fortitude in God that cannot be shaken. And we have an undying faith in him. That is what he wants from us. And that is the aim that we should be doing in our personal development. We need to be sanctified in the way that we do things because the alternative would be somebody who is double-minded or has divided allegiance. Much like what Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters because you're going to love one and hate the other. So often, if we pick something in this world that we like better than God, we'll usually run to that more than God. That's just the reality of our flesh. So why would we want to do that to damage our relationship with God? Because then you are living in sin, right? And then you go and you try to witness to somebody, or you wonder why you're having no success in bringing salvation to somebody. Well, no wonder. You're a hypocrite. You are living a double life. You're cheating on God with something that's on this planet. No wonder you're not successful, because he's not going to bless that. When we get to the book of James, this will be very well explained, which we'll get there soon. But for now, let's focus on being sanctified, much like the Thessalonians did in verse 9. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is how we need to live, much like the Thessalonians did. Then Paul explains his behavior that he had with them while he was with the people of Thessalonica. He explains that he was mistreated in other places, and yet that didn't stop him from being bold in his sharing the gospel with them. They believed what he said as being spiritual truth, not just something that he was peddling and making up as he goes, but it was actually the word of God, and that's why they had such genuine faith in it. Not only that, but he also was meek and humble in their presence. He was an apostle. He could have used his apostolic authority to have these people do whatever they needed, to meet his physical needs, as well as to give him the honor and respect he deserves. But he didn't do that. He says clearly in verse 6 that he did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others, although they could have pushed for that. But instead, he chose to be gentle among them, as a nursing mother fondly cares for her own children. And so he developed that love and that affection for them in the process. This is what often it is called Paul's pastoral heart. This is what he wanted 
to do for everybody that he's witnessed to. He wanted to care for them like a nursing mother. That's how gentle and meek he was in their presence. He was definitely one who held authority and was firm in his foundation, but he also came across as being someone who was compassionate, and that's something that you cannot compromise when you share the gospel. We have to meet the physical needs of people sometimes, but ultimately we need to examine their spiritual needs and address that. But we need to do it in a loving, compassionate way. Not just, repent, sinner. You're burning in hell. What is wrong with you? Try that, and it's not going to work. Instead, we need to build that rapport with people. We have to develop that relationship and that trust that what you're saying is reliable and is helpful to them. And then there's your entrance into the gospel. Should we call for people's repentance sometimes? Yes, especially if it's flagrant. But in most cases, you won't need to until you get closer to sharing the gospel. Then he speaks in a way that we've seen in other letters so far. In verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. How do we do that? We obey his commandments. That demonstrates the love that we have for Jesus Christ. The second half of chapter 2, he explains some of his sufferings, as well as his desire to go see them again. But he mentions that Satan has been hindering them. And God is allowing this to happen because he's got other plans for him, but he still plans to go visit these people once more, whenever he can. In chapter 3, it starts with how Paul was really interested in finding out how these people were doing, so he sent Timothy to them. He reported everything that was going on with them, and they were overjoyed by how successful they were in not only standing firm in their faith, but helping Paul feel encouraged that what he did was not a waste of time. Because yes, it certainly is encouraging to see a return on your investment. You won't always see it. Sometimes you have to plant the seeds and God will grow it in his time. But as someone who's a church leader and a Bible study teacher, when I see a return on the investment, it really brings me joy that what I'm doing is not a waste of time. I know it never is. God is proud of what I'm doing. But in the physical, it's nice to see a return on the investment sometimes. In the second half of chapter 3, he goes back to the same topic of intercessory prayer, like we see in verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. As the spiritual leaders of these people, they can identify gaps of knowledge as well as skill and anything that needs instruction. And so he hopes to see them again in order to help them along the way. They're doing very well with what they've done so far, but he wants to make them better. Isn't that the sign of a good leader? A leader is not just satisfied with the bare minimum, but they want to make sure that the people that they are over are successful and they're happy with what they're doing. Those are signs of a good leader. Chapter 4 
primarily is a chapter of instruction and about development of their spiritual gifts and the conduct that they are presenting to the world around them. Like he says in verse 1, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, so they're on the right track, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What is God's will for you? Your sanctification. I don't know what God's will is in my life. Well, he said in Romans chapter 12 that it's everything that is good and acceptable and perfect. And what could culminate good and acceptable and perfect? Your sanctification. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you better than what you are right now. God is investing in you. And therefore, we do not want to scorn or reject his authority and his instruction in our lives. If we do, we will not grow. We will be disobedient children in that regard. Why should we not disobey? Verse 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, like everybody else in the world is doing, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man, but God. And that's important, because it's not just something that Paul's saying out of his own opinion. This is something from God that we have to be doing. So what are a couple of things he tells them to do in order to be more sanctified? He tells them to abstain from sexual immorality. Get out of that. Don't even entertain it. And then the second thing is to not defraud your brother. Don't take advantage. Don't hurt someone with your words or with your actions. So what does this mean? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Very similar understanding here, right? Then he tells them to have brotherly love for the other saints, which they're already doing. He tells them to excel even more at it. And then he talks about the dead. And this kind of comes out of nowhere, but this was maybe a question that they brought up to him at one point. So the question was this, does the death of a believer before the Lord comes cause him to lose all hope of sharing in the glorious return of Christ? No. His answer here is reassuring them that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be raised first. They will rejoin with their bodies, their bodies will be glorified in the twinkling of an eye, and then those that are alive will meet the Lord in the air, and then we will all go together to heaven. This is what we would often call the rapture. So this is another part where we see the rapture take place. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. No one is going to miss this. Let's be very clear about that. When Jesus returns, I don't care if you're blind, you're deaf, you're asleep, it doesn't matter. Everyone is going to know that Jesus has returned. It will be glorious when that happens. 
there are a couple of things that need to happen first, and we'll get into that later. But first, the temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's one. Two, there is a great apostasy where there will be an exodus of people from the church who will abandon their faith. And really, those people that abandon their faith were not really Christians at all. They're not saved by grace. They pretended to be Christians, but they really were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third thing that needs to happen before Jesus returns is the Antichrist needs to show up. And we're not talking about lowercase Antichrists here, because those have been in the world forever. But we're talking about the capital A, the last Antichrist the one that will actually get Satan's power, do supernatural things, and sit on the throne at the temple in Jerusalem. Then Jesus will return. And then the whole world will know about it. Then he reminds us in chapter 5 that the day of the Lord, that day I'm mentioning right now, will come just like a thief in the night. No one knows when this day is coming. Jesus gave us some hints as to when to expect it, but we don't know exactly when. There's no calendar that tells us this. There's no spiritual revelation that will say this. Jesus was very clear when he was walking the earth that no one knows the day of the Lord except the Father. And now that he is back in his former glory, Jesus knows when he's returning. But that's it. Only God knows. And he's not going to tell anybody. It will come like a thief in the night. If people can predict it, then it's not like a thief in the night, right? If you know beforehand that someone's going to break into your house, then you're going to be ready for it. But we don't know when it's going to come. We need to be ready all the time because we don't know when it's coming. It will come upon them like a woman in labor, as it's described here. So Paul challenges us to be sober-minded, pay attention, be on the alert, don't get distracted, stay the course with God, and stay firm in your foundation in Jesus Christ. Don't let the world distract you, don't let it render you ineffective, but rather be ready and be waiting for the day of the Lord. So you really have to ask yourself this one thing. If Jesus were to return right now, would you have any regrets? If your answer is yes, I do have regrets, then this is the time to address those. It's not too late. We don't know when he's coming back. But it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But God has told us what to do, and we need to do that. So we need to examine ourselves. And I think that's something as a, as a society that we don't do enough. You need to examine yourself. Do you have any regrets if Jesus were returned today? And if your answer is, yes, I do have regrets, now is the time to repent. Seek forgiveness. Cast aside the things that are holding you back. And stay the course with God. It can be done. And he wants that for you. And he will bless it if you truly Put everything aside and follow him. And finally, the second half of chapter 5 is some other various teachings 
of certain behaviors that the Thessalonian people need to have. For example, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So you're talking about church leaders, right? Talking about your pastors, talking about your deacons, talking about your elders. Want to make sure that they are recognized for what they do, they are honored, but also to be obedient to them, especially if they're elder. Admonish one another, especially the ones that are unruly, the ones that have given up working. Because we're going to see that being a problem here in the second one, where they misunderstood Paul's letter about Jesus returning. So a lot of people in the Thessalonian church simply just stopped working because they thought Jesus was coming soon. We have to be careful not to be in that line of thinking. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and working like we're supposed to in the meantime. Then he reminds us to pray without ceasing in verse 17. In everything, give thanks, right? And then it says, do not quench the Spirit. So it's said in this way because you think of quenching, I think of water, right? And it's, that's intentional. Because so often the Holy Spirit is referred to as like a fire. And so anytime that you put water on a fire, you're quenching that fire. So what he's getting at is that if you are quenching the Holy Spirit, it's when the Holy Spirit is trying to lead you or convict you, and you are refusing to listen, or you're trying desperately just to get him to shut up. You're trying to ignore him and tune him out. Those are the kinds of things that we're talking about here, quenching the Spirit. Don't do that. That is a disaster waiting to happen. And there will be consequences that come from that. Not like you'll lose your salvation or anything, but there will be physical, present consequences of your actions. So we don't want to dishonor our Lord, and we don't want to quench the Spirit. Then it also mentions this, do not despise prophetic utterances. There's an individual that's entered into my life, and He believes that for the last year or so that he has been receiving prophetic messages in numbers and in code and in images, and a lot of that is beyond me, but it would be foolish for me to discredit him as just being insane, right? Especially when you look at it like this. If this is indeed a prophetic utterance, it would be foolish for me to ignore it. I think we can all agree from what we've read in the Bible so far that God does some very crazy things to people in terms of showing them visions that they don't understand. They dream dreams that end up being true, things being symbolic and meaning something else. So certainly God can still do that today. And so it's piqued my interest as well as it can be from God. So at this point, What my role is, is to test the spirits, is to use all the discernment and wisdom that God has given me and his guidance in the process to determine if this is indeed from God or not. If it's a mental health issue, we'll take care of that. If it is indeed prophecy, then something's going to happen with that, and we have to 
be obedient to it. It's not for me to say, but it is my job to examine everything carefully. Like it says here in verse 23, examine everything carefully. If I just said, nah, he's just crazy, whatever, then I would not only be dishonoring a brother, but also I would be dishonoring the Lord because I'm not examining everything carefully. And the last thing he mentions in verse 23 is, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame, to where all of you is united to the cause of Christ, where you are not deviated in any way, you're not divided amongst yourself, and you're staying the course. Those are extremely essential items as being a Christian, especially as we have more exposure and more experience in the world around us. This place is very dark. And if we have no idea how to swim in this world, we'll drown quickly. Make sure that you are reading the Word, taking it seriously, spend time in prayer, and work towards sanctification. Don't try to just entertain yourself. Don't try to ignore things and do things your way. Seek God's sanctification. And the results of that will be far better than you could ever do for yourself. Trust me, God is way better than you. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.